All right, open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42. We've been working through the book of Genesis systematically, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Uh, We have about seven, maybe eight weeks left somewhere in there. And a lot of you guys have asked uh, what's next. Um, After our last elders meeting, we uh, we always kind of think through what's the biggest need in our congregation right now. We feel like uh, the book of Matthew is the best book for us as a congregation. So Matthew will be next for us. Uh, But some of you, and I thought it was kind of funny that you asked this, have asked if we could do a few chapters in Exodus to see what happens to Israel uh, after they get back, get to Egypt. And so we may do that for a few weeks in between Genesis and Matthew. Uh, but when we left off last week in Genesis, uh, there was a worldwide famine and, and Joseph was literally feeding the world as the prime minister of Egypt. And the story took quite a turn last week when his brothers showed up to buy grain. Uh, these were the same brothers that sold him into slavery 20 years prior. Uh, These are the same brothers that convinced their their father that he was dead 20 years prior. So you can imagine when they show up to buy grain, everything starts to change now, right? Now, they don't recognize him, but he certainly recognizes them. And he notices that there's one brother who's not among them, who just happens to be his only full-blooded brother, Benjamin. And so Joseph leaves Simeon in prison And he makes him promise to bring Benjamin back to Egypt. And and then not only does he give them grain, he gives them their money back. So they come to buy grain from him. He gives them grain, then he gives them their money back. And that kind of freaked them out, you know. And so so now when we catch up to them, they're back in Canaan. And so if you're taking notes this morning, point number one is simply the return to Canaan. I was actually going to title this sermon, Meanwhile, Back in Canaan, because that's what's happening. We've just switched the story from Egypt to Canaan, but it's gonna go back to Egypt here soon. Well, the brothers get home and and they tell their dad what happened in Egypt. And so rather than me recounting their story, I'll just let them recount the story for us. So Genesis 42, and we'll begin in verse 29. It says, when they came to their father Jacob uh, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that that had happened to them, saying, the man, The Lord of the land spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive. And the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the Lord of the land said to us, by this, I will know that you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you, and then you may trade in the land. I do find it interesting that they call him the man, right? The man, the Lord of the land. And what they come back to their dad is saying, hey, the, the man, the Lord of the land, he was mean. He called us spies, and but you know us, dad, like we're honest men. In fact, we're so honest that we lied to him about one of our brothers being dead. And now he's telling us we have to prove our honesty. Well, what did he do? Well, he locked up Simeon. And he demanded that we bring Benjamin back to him. Now, Jacob is not happy about this at all. Okay, so, so when they empty their, their sacks of grain, everything changes. Look at verse 35. Now it came about as they were entering their sacks, 
that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. Now, some of you guys, as as you've been reading this story, and even for me, I thought, well, why is Joseph so hard on his brothers? And most commentators say, well, he was so hard on them because he, he, he wanted them to repent for what they did to him. Well, it seems to me that they were at least somewhat repentant. Remember when they said, oh, truly, like we're going through this now because we're guilty concerning our brother. Now, if you were Joseph, and you're right, you are guilty. Thank you for admitting it 20 years ago. This is what you did to me. I mean, isn't revealing their guilt enough? Well, I don't think so. And I think there's something in Joseph where he remembers the dreams he had with them when still at home. And so in chapter 42, we saw that 10 of his brothers bowed before him. But in his original dream, how many brothers were bowing before him? 11 were. 11 brothers would bow. So I think this is good evidence that that gave Joseph assurance that the brothers would return with Benjamin. Because my dream said, God said, 11 would bow and there's only 10 bowing. And the whole time, they're still trying to convince themselves that they're honest men. I mean, they just struck gold. Like they've just won the lottery, right? They, They brought all this money and then they get their money back and the grain and he gives them provisions along the way. But what does it say? They're dismayed. That that word dismayed means fear or terrible or dreaded. And this fear gets in Jacob's head and and, and immediately he starts replaying all the losses in his life. Now, as, as you're reading through this, we have to remember Jacob has a new name, right? What's his new name? Israel. What did Jacob mean? Manipulator, supplanter, deceiver. Israel means one who strives with God, one who wrestled with God. And so Jacob had this encounter with God. And because of this encounter with God, God changed his name. And I see this, and you know the first thing I thought is, man, sometimes old habits are hard to break. I mean, a lot like us, sometimes old habits are hard to break. And it's easier for Jacob to go back to being Jacob than Jacob going forward to being Israel. It's kind of like us. We come to Christ, right? The, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, except some harvests are hard to break. And we forget how God has changed us in the same way that God changed Jacob. Look at verse 36. That their father said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. This speaks volumes about Jacob. What's he say about Joseph? He's dead. Joseph is no more. Well, that's, listen, that's legit, okay? Because because he had the bloody coat brought to him. I mean, surely he thought, I I understand that. But Simeon? He uses the same fatalistic language for Simeon that he used for Jacob. And there's no reason for him to think that Simeon's dead. And so he's so focused on what he's lost that he forgets God. In fact, he forgets Joseph's dream. Remember, Joseph had this dream and his dad was, was kind of like, oh, you can't say stuff like that. Your brother's going to bow down before you. Don't say stuff like that. And it says, but he treasured that in his heart. Like he kept that in his mind, except he didn't here. He actually forgot. He forgot God's promises. And I think a lot of that is probably due to the fact that he's really lo- suffered a lot of loss in his life. 
Jacob lost Rachel. Remember, that was the wife he loved. Simeon and Levi, back in, in chapter 34, they murdered a bunch of people. So they were morally disqualified from being in the line of the Messiah. He thinks Joseph is gone, so he's lost him. Simeon is in Egypt, he's lost him. And now he's like, you're gonna take Benjamin away from me? I mean, just think about the way Jacob grew up. He's more of a worker at home and his brother is the rugged outdoorsman. Daddy loved his brother more than he loved him. So he lost his father's affection. He steals his brother's birthright. He steals his inheritance. And some years later, he, he lies to his father and then runs for his life only to meet the only guy in the world who's actually more deceptive than him, Laban, his father-in-law. He spends 20 years making his father-in-law rich and he wants to marry Rachel and he ends up getting Leah and Rachel and, and then he not only gets those two for wives, then he gets their two handmaidens as well. So he ends up with four wives running for his life after 20 years of being ripped off by his father-in-law. You think your family's messed up. I mean, he's gone through all this loss and, he, and his mindset is everything's against me. Like all of it, it's, it's all against me. I have nothing going for me. And yet we know, because we know the end of the story, that everything's actually working out perfectly. It's exactly according to God's plan. Jacob can't see it yet. Now look how Reuben responds to his dad, verse 37. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, you may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. I'm just curious, like how does that actually help? Can you imagine that conversation with your dad? You've just recounted all the losses he's gone through, right? And, and you go, dad, please, I, tell you what, I'll watch Benjamin, if he doesn't come back, kill both my kids. Yeah, that's a great solution, right? I know you'll be sad if, if your son dies, but you'll be happy if you can kill my two sons, right? I mean, it's double the death. That's not a solution. That's dysfunction. And as the oldest, Reuben would have been responsible for Joseph, but he failed him once. And so Reuben's attempt to make things right makes no sense at all. Look at verse 38. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. A real loose translation of that is, nope, that ain't gonna happen. He's not going anywhere. You're not taking Benjamin. But why does he say you're not taking Benjamin? Because of what that'll do to me. You're not taking him because of how it will, what, how it will, how it will affect me. Who has the story suddenly become about? The same old Jacob, the supplanter, the deceiver, the manipulator. That's why they call him Jacob. This is the old Jacob. This is the Jacob, remember the old Jacob that didn't pray? Remember the old Jacob that, that doesn't seek God? The old Jacob that doesn't mention God? What's he worried about? My gray hair going down to Sheol. And the brothers want to get home to get, to get Benjamin. They want to get back to, get to Egypt to get Simeon. They want food to feed their families. But Jacob can't let go of the thing that's most precious to him, his kid. Why? It's an idol. Our God is a jealous God. 
Our God desires what's best for us. You know what's best for us? He is. And he knows it. Jacob is holding on to Benjamin because Benjamin's status determines Jacob's state of mind. You know, one of the questions that we ask in our counseling training is, how would your counselee answer this question? And the question is this, if I only had blank, then I would be blank. Jacob would say, if I only had Benjamin safe and sound, then I would be happy. What would you say? If I only had a good marriage, if I only had a good kid, if I only had a better job, if I only had a nicer house or a faster car or a thinner body, or if I had friends, if I would just have that, then I would be happy, then I would be content, then I would be satisfied, then I wouldn't be arguing so much, complaining so much, whining so much, griping so much. If I only had this and anything other than God is idolatry. In Jacob's case, he says, I will, die. I will die if harm should befall my precious Benjamin. Kid, kids are good, right? Love kids. My son's getting ready to have a kid, first kid, maybe now. Kids are important, but kids aren't ultimate. Only God is ultimate. Jacob is holding on to an important thing, his son, but his son has become his ultimate thing to the point of where his son is his idolatrous thing. And so let's keep going in verse one. Now the famine was severe in the land. Now we're still early in the famine. We, remember, we had seven years of plenty and, and they're getting ready for the last, uh, for seven years of famine. But this is among the first of the seven years of, of famine. And that word for severe here, it's the same word used for glory. We say the glory of God, same word. It, it means heavy, it means weighty. So, so that when it's saying that this famine is severe, it's, it's weighty, it's heavy. It's not, a, it's not a light famine, it's a crushing famine. It's a destructive famine. Look at verse two. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. Okay, side note. So don't miss here that, that who Jacob is. Jacob is one of the patriarchs, and he's suffering in the midst of a famine. In other words, don't, don't think that just because you're a believer, just because you're God's chosen vessel, just because that you're precious in his sight, that doesn't mean that you get to escape famines. Right? J Jacob had, was, was just as exposed to the famine as everyone else in the world was. Jesus says that, that God allows the sun to rise on the good and the evil. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He withholds food from the, right, the just and the unjust. So as we go through difficulties in our world, we're not exempt because we're Christians. We get the same trials that everyone else does. Christians and non-Christians, we get COVID and cancer. Christians and non-Christians, we, we get inflation. And, and it really exposes the heresy of the prosperity gospel. Like there's no magic words that we can pray away problems with. There's no behavioral formula that, that allows you to get out of the consequences for free. In fact, if you become a Christian, or if you're a Christian, there's a really good chance that your problems are gonna get worse. Persecution comes to Christians. We're the ones called to bear our cross. We're the ones called to deny ourselves and die to ourselves. Christians are. 
And so Jacob and his family are suffering in the same family that the unbelieving world is suffering in. And Jacob knows that the only place there's food in Egypt. But Jacob does not seem to remember about the man, the land, the Lord of the land. What his requirement is, is bring Benjamin back if you want to see Simeon again. Which leads, leads this really good dialogue. And so point number two is the responses. Now in the next few verses, there's this dialogue going on after Jacob tells them to go back to Egypt and Judah steps in and he steps into the leadership role as a spokesman for his brothers and, and he's just kind of reminding his dad what was said to him by, by Joseph. He just didn't know it was Joseph. He was the man, uh, the Lord of the land. He was the, the prime minister, we might say. Look at verse three. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, the man solemnly warned us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. If you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. So Judah basically tells Jacob that unless, unless Benjamin goes with us, this is a wasted trip. Dad, there's no reason at all to go if we don't have Benjamin. I mean, if we show up without him, not only do we not get an audience with the man, there's a good chance that he'll kill us. And if, we don't let, if, if you don't let Benjamin go, we'll, we're going to die in the famine, so death is coming either way. This is actually an ultimatum that they're giving to their dad. In verse 4, Judah says that they're buying food for you. We're buying food for you, dad. Verse 5, he says, we will not go without Benjamin. So now they're unified in this. You're either going to have to let Benjamin go with us and risk his death or all of us die. Those are your options, right? Two bad options. Look at verse six. Then Israel said, why'd you treat me so badly? By telling the man whether you still had another brother. Who's the story still about? Israel or Jacob. He's like, you, you backed me into a corner. You're asking me to do something that you know I won't do. And then he's like, well, what in the world? What, what were you thinking when you told him you had another brother? I mean, why would you even offer that information? And, and I get it, right? It's like, you said what? We were laughing uh, a couple weeks, last week, I guess it was. And... Uh, uh, when I had my accident, my, the insurance company gave me uh, a certain amount, and I guess I shouldn't say, but a certain amount for my truck, right? Because it wasn't my fault, and so they totaled it out. And, uh, and I was telling the guy that as I was buying his truck from him, um, before I even know he, knew he was selling the truck, I told him how much the insurance gave me for my truck. Because I didn't know he had a truck for sale. And, and he said, oh, I didn't know you were looking for a truck. I have a truck. I only start up a couple times a month. I never even drive it. And, he, and, and, he, and so he, we were walking out to the garage and I said, man, I should have just told you. He gave, he, they gave me 2,500 for my truck and not what they actually gave me. In other words, why'd you offer that kind of information? It's too much information. You just put yourself in a corner. Look at verse seven. But they said, the man questioned particularly about us and our relatives saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? 
But notice in verse 7, it says, they said. Now, now they're one mind, right? The, the, we, we're speaking together, and, and he kept probing like we were witnesses, and, and we're on a witness stand. And Dad, all we did was answer his questions. We had no idea where this was leading. Now, let's just switch it up just for a second. How's Joseph feel? Joseph, as he sees his brother, he has to be rejoicing at the news that his father and his brother are alive. I mean, he now gets to take care of them in the famine. He, he now, the, now the dream starts making sense. What do they know? They know nothing. They know nothing at all. And what they do know, they don't tell Jacob. Joseph didn't tell them who he was. You know what Joseph told them? I worship the same God. They never tell that to Jacob. You know why? Because when you're feeling the guilt of sin, the name of God is often the last thing you want to hear. Even though it's the first thing you want to hear. Even though he's the first one that can actually help. Look at verse 8. Judah said to his father Israel, send the lad with me. We will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. In other words, dad, let, let us, well, all of us live and die based on what you do with Benjamin. You, me, the grandchildren, all the wives. This doesn't well end well for any of us if he stays with you. And dad, if you're worried about Benjamin dying in Egypt, let me just remind you that he's gonna die in Canaan if you don't let him go. Like there's no plan B. This is our only option, verse nine. I myself, Judah says, will be surety for him. You may hold me, back. You may hold me responsible for him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. Then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. They've been procrastinating. They've been sitting on this. And the trip to Egypt is not like this, hey, let's go down to, to Mary Camp and, and find a U-Haul place, right? It, it's not a day drive. This is probably a two-month journey each way. So, so some commentators say this is an eight to 12-month span of time. What's the point? They're procrastinating. And their procrastination didn't make the problem go away. They could have made two trips to Egypt by now. And so while they're waiting, the food supply is dwindling. Meanwhile, back in the king's prison, who's sitting there? Simeon. What must he be thinking? I'm going to kill them boys. Takes two months to get home, two months to get back. That was four months ago. He probably thinks he was forgotten about in prison, just like Joseph was. But thank God for Judah. Because what Judah does is, is he, he is willing to, to put himself out by sacrificing himself for the sake of the family. It should be no surprise at all that Jesus comes as a lion from the tribe of Judah. Verse 11, then their father Israel, again, still same name change, said to them, if it must be so. It's bad enough that there's a famine But if there's a famine and you don't accept the reality of the famine, that's actually worse. We, we see in Jacob here, we see in Israel here, he actually accepted the famine. If, if he must go, then, if, if it must be so, then, then go. 
Verse 11 again, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present, a little balm, a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Listen, that, this is a great plan because they, they could have been accused of stealing the money. They could have been accused of stealing the grain. They could have been accused, and I hadn't thought about that till this week, but they could have been accused of selling Simeon who's in prison. That's where the money came from. So Jacob's like, listen, just take double it back. Buy more grain, return the money that, you, uh, that, that uh, it looks like you took so that you're not, uh, you don't look like spies or thieves. And then uh, give them the best we have. Best balm, best honey, best aromatic gum, best myrrh, best pistachio nuts. Verse 13, and take your brother also and arise, return to the man. Easy to get rid of the pistachio nuts. <laughs> Hard to get rid of Benjamin. It, it almost sounds like the struggle of Abraham taking Isaac to sacrifice him on the altar. It almost sounds like take now your son, your only son. In this case, take now your son, your beloved son, the only one you have left from your beloved wife, Rachel, and return to the man. Verse 14. And may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. By the way, chapter 14, we're going to keep coming back to that, especially in the, the application. It's the first time that God Almighty, El Shaddai, is actually mentioned in the narrative. It's written really as a prayer, almost like a benediction. And I think, oh, if he, if he only knew what we know, if he only knew that this is Joseph's hand that he was letting his beloved Benjamin into. And so point number three is the return to Egypt. The return to Egypt. So between chapter four, or verse 14 and 15, look how 14 ends. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the man took this present. They took double the money in their hand and Benjamin, and they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Two months, right in there. Verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house servant, bring the men into the house and slay an animal, make ready for the men to be, uh, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it is because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in and that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves and then he says, with our donkeys. Oh no, our donkeys. What's going to happen? Apparently they're a pretty big deal. Have you ever seen somebody you know in town? Or you, you know them, you know you should know them from church, but you don't remember who they are because you only know them when they're with their spouse. Like you recognize them when they're with their spouse, like in context, right? You know why they don't recognize Joseph? He's out of context. They never expected Joseph to be in this position. They're, they're not even thinking who this man must be. Plus, remember, Joseph looks like an Egyptian ruler. And so to invite, for Joseph to invite them over to his house for dinner, that is a huge deal in this culture. 
remember, I don't remember what sermon it was, but remember a year or so ago, I said what the three most important phrases are. Three most important phrases. I love you. I forgive you. What's for dinner? What's for dinner proves love and forgiveness. What's for dinner is an invitation to fellowship. What's for dinner is an invitation to friendship. It's an invitation to community. And, and it's really one of, another one of, of the, uh, the long line of ways that Joseph is a picture of Jesus. Revelation 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him. What's for dinner? And he with me. This isn't a salvation verse. This is a fellowship verse. And throughout the Gospels, we continually see Jesus being accused of eating with sinners. I love you. I forgive you. What's for dinner? Jesus is more than, than a, a one-way ticket to heaven. He wants fellowship with you. He wants relationship with you. He wants to commune with you. John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is more than a place. It's more than a time period. Eternal life is a living relationship uh, with God through Jesus Christ. And how kind of God that he doesn't just give us heaven. He, he desires relationship with us. But these brothers are so guilty, they're just freaked out. And this is suspicious to them. Like this kind of kindness, why would the prime minister of Egypt be this kind to me? We don't know what to do with this. Look at verse 19. So they came near to Joseph's house steward. Remember that. They came near to Joseph's house steward, spoke to him at the entrance of the house. And they said, oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about, we came to the lodging place and we opened our sacks and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of our, his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back uh, in our hand. We have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. Now my guess is for the last two months, they've been rehearsing this line. So let's try it out. Let's try it out on the house steward first. Love his response. Verse 23, he said, relax, be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Your God did this. Don't you remember when, when the prime minister said, we worship the same God? We, I worship the God of your father. I had your money and Oh, by the way, here's Simeon, verse 24. Then the man brought the, uh, the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. These guys have to be jacked up excited. I mean, they're farmers from Canaan and they're being served in the prime minister's home. What in the world? Verse 26. And when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. You know what just happened? The dream was fulfilled. All 11 are bowing. I'm certain they're not thinking that though. 
You know what they're thinking? We need food. He has food, and we're getting ready to feast. Verse 27. Then he asked them about their welfare and said, Is your old father well, of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed down in homage. And as he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. There was just something about Benjamin that made Joseph weep. I don't know what it is. This is conjecture, but I think he reminded him of his mom. Maybe it was just the fact, this is my full blood brother, I don't know. But maybe when he looked at him, he saw his mom. Verse 31. Then he washed his face, came out, and he controlled himself and said, serve the meal. So they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them, with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now think about how this is set up. The, the Egyptians won't eat with the Hebrews because that's gross to the Egyptians. So what do you do with Joseph? If he sits with his brothers, then they'll figure out who he is. But he can't sit with the Egyptian because they know he's Hebrew, right? Do they know he's Hebrew? Yeah, absolutely. Potiphar knew he was Hebrew. The baker knew he was Hebrew. The baker told the Pharaoh that a Hebrew prisoner was able to interpret dreams. So the Pharaoh knew he was Hebrew. So what does Joseph do? He eats by himself. He's got all the power. He's got all the status. But they wouldn't dine together because to dine together means fellowship and communion. By the way, this is the beauty of the wisdom of God. God is going to bring the Hebrew people to Egypt for 400 years. And they don't intermingle with the Egyptians. You know why? Because the Egyptians think they're gross. And so when they grow and multiply in Egypt, they keep their Hebrew distinctive. They don't assimilate into the Egyptian society because the Egyptians think the Hebrews are loathsome. Verse 33. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in astonishment. He took portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with them. And so their minds are just blown by how they're seated. And, and I think the fact that Benjamin is given the biggest portion is another test. How are they going to act when Benjamin gets the most and the best? Will they treat Benjamin like they treated him? So Joseph, I really truly believe, wants to see their heart. So far, so good, right? Let's stop there. Let's get some application to go home with. How do we apply this? Number one, get out of the monkey trap. Get out of the monkey. You ever heard of a monkey trap before? I'm half Filipino, so this comes natural to me. <laughs> a monkey trap is, is a basket and, and it's got a hole in the top that's, that's big enough for your hand to go in, but, but too, too small for your fist to come out. And so they would attach this basket to some type of immovable object and, and then they would throw a banana in the basket and a monkey would reach in, grab the banana, but he can't get his fist out. And the only reason he's stuck is because he refuses to let go of the banana. Jacob was caught in a monkey trap. 
Benjamin is the banana. Benjamin is the thing that he will not let go of. Benjamin is not just an important kid of his. Benjamin is the ultimate kid of his. He's an idolatrous kid of his. He's so ultimate that he became an idol and God hates idolatry. Everything we have is to be held with an open hand. I, I love the story of Bill and Vonette Bright, founders of Campus Crusade for Christ, the largest missionary organization in the history of the world. On their wedding day, they took a blank piece of paper and the two of them signed the bottom of the paper. And they said, God, you fill in the rest. Anything you want us to do, anywhere you want us to go, we'll do it. Some of you are caught in a monkey trap. You're holding on to some dream or some person or some idea that, that you want to accomplish and you're, you're ideal and it's become a trap to you. You know what I think is cool? And I didn't point it out when we went through it. I don't think it's a coincidence that the only time God Almighty is mentioned is after Jacob is willing to release Benjamin. So what are those things you're holding on to? What are those things that are so important that they become ultimate, that need to be released by faith into the hands of a sovereign God? Number two, stop procrastinating. Jacob's family could have made two trips back to Egypt, but Jacob procrastinated. And listen, I know a lot of us have some pressing issues in our life right now, but I can promise you this, avoiding those issues isn't making anything better. I, I think it's in our marriage, my design seminar, I say, um, you know, wives, if, if you told your husband to do something six months ago, he will do it. Don't nag him about it. That was a joke. <laughs> Technically, it's not a joke unless somebody laughs, so... But I think a lot of times we just wait. We think that a sink's gonna get fixed if, if we just don't pay attention to it. Listen, absence doesn't make the heart grow fonder. Absence makes the heart grow bitter. Ignoring, ignoring a problem doesn't make the problem go away. But ignoring the problem can make it go from bad to worse to awful. And, and the Christian life is, is a life that we're to live with a sense of urgency. We need to deal with today's problems today because tomorrow has a bunch of new problems. Matthew 5, verse 23, look what Jesus said. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. There's urgency there. I mean, he's literally saying, if you're in church and as you're sitting in church, you remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering, tithe an offering box there in the back, you can leave it there, and then go make things right. And, and then right from there, the next verse is, make friends quickly with your opponents at law. Forgive today, confess today. If necessary, pay restitution today. Reconcile today. Like, stop procrastinating. You know, I think sometimes we treat our souls like we treat the doctor. How many of you, no show of hands here, don't go to the doctor because you think you know better or you think that the problem will just go away if you don't? 
Jesus came to heal sick people. And some of you think you're not sick. You think that if you just procrastinate on spiritual things, then they're just gonna go away. When the message of scripture is today, today if you hear his voice, then don't harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. And the last point, number three, remember God's character. Look back at verse 14. The name for God there is El Shaddai. It means God, the all-powerful one. In other words, by calling him God Almighty, he's saying, God, there's nothing that's impossible with you. So I'm releasing Benjamin into a God who who makes the impossible happen. He's the all-powerful God. He's the one who works miracles. You ever heard the saying, when you get to the point where God is all you have, you'll realize that God is all you need? That's where Jacob is at. Trust God for our lives or else all of us die. But verse 14 also speaks of the compassion of God. So not only is he an all-powerful God, he is the all-loving God. That word compassion there is the word for bowels or intestines. The, The depth of God's compassion. So you look at that and you go, listen, he, God is not just high atop the mountaintop. He's also near to us. He is both in the heights of heaven and he's walking with us in the midst of our most difficult trials all at the same time. And, and if that is not the God you worship, then today is the day to start. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent of your sins. Today is the day to trust in Christ to forgive you of your sins. He loves you, he died for you, he rose from death to prove that all of it's true. Our Father, thank you for your word and for the way that, although familiar text, the way that you shine your light on, on it and then as a result of that shines on our own souls. Gotta pray for us as a church. May we trust you for new ways and new things May we not be like Jacob, just holding on to whatever this idol is that has got us trapped. God, I thank you that you're a loving God, a compassionate God, an all-knowing God, that you're the God that works the impossible. I pray for us that we would trust you. Thank you for this time of worship. We sing to you now. We praise you because you alone are worthy of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.